This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. What a day! It's beautiful outside. And because I'm surrounded by the leading lights in undergraduate medical education, it's beautiful inside, too. (laughs) Say hello to second-year med student Emma Barr. Hello. Also here, M2 Mason LaMarche. Hello. We've got Nick Lind here. He's an M2. Hi. And MD-PhD student Miranda Skeen is ready to go. Hello, and I am. (laughs) But if you listen closely, you might hear an additional person. And no... It's not former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer breathing heavily as he recovers from some totally fictitious Dancing with the Stars performance because that is something that could never happen in America. It's too ridiculous. No, it's geriatrician, UCSD, professor of medicine and author of the new book, Elderhood. Guys, give a warm welcome to Dr. Louise Aronson. Yay. Hey. <laughs> Hello. Uh, hi, Dr. Aronson. You, you, you and I go way back, so... Uh, we do uh, you know. years. Yes, uh, you, you've been to our Examine Life conference in the past. Um, I have. It's excellent. I recommend it all the time. Oh, thank you. Aww. That's fantastic. We're yeah. having another one in October. So if you want to, if you want to join us, I'm not going to. I'm not going to say you can't. You know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dr. Aronson, I'm so glad we could get you uh, on the show to talk about your book, Elderhood. Um, it's such a beautifully written book on such an underappreciated. Uh, stage of life. Um, so in your words, I wonder if you tell us what the book is about. Well, the subtitle gives it away a little bit. So it's about redefining aging, transforming medicine and reimagining life. And in a nutshell, we talk a lot about childhood and adulthood and about kids and adults. But we all know there's actually a third phase of life. And because we're living so much longer, the third phase of life is actually much longer for most people than childhood is. And yet we don't really have policies or structures that acknowledge that, right? And this is everything from parks to restaurants to our whole healthcare system. And then we blame old age for what is in fact a failure of us as people to apply the same creativity, innovation, and and just basic respect and acknowledgement to the decades of elderhood that we do to the decades of childhood or adulthood. Yeah. In the beginning of your book, you say that as a, as a geriatrician, you've had to struggle against the structural forces that prevent you from giving your patients what they need. Um, and there's three things to unpack in that statement, I think. So what does a geriatrician do? So a geriatrician is a doctor for older adults in the same way a pediatrician is a doctor for kids or an internist is a doctor for adults. Um, And so it means just like pediatricians or internists, 
many of us provide primary care for people in the years from, you know, 60 to my oldest patient was 111. So that's a half century worth of life. Mm. Um, and other people work as geriatric hospitalists. Some of them work as what's called sniffists. So in skilled nursing facilities, um, there's an ist for everything now. Sure, uh, sure. Many of us do house calls, uh, which some people think went out with the covered wagon, but is coming back with a vengeance, uh, especially uh, in the start up era here in the Bay Area. I'm not sure what it's like in Iowa. I don't think it's so. That, and, and we now have sort of geriatric oncologists and geriatric cardiologists and geriatric um, anesthesiologists. So it really is just like its analogs, um, only a little more recent and smaller still. So, so the other thing um, in that um, in that statement about uh, the structural forces, uh, what do your elderly patients generally need from a geriatrician? Uh, medical care that, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't, no, I like that, it straightforward. Um, yeah. I guess I'd say, you know, medical care generally, but also medical care that acknowledges, um, the changes in their bodies and lives. Mm. So, you know, if you line up like a 15 year old, a 45 year old and an 85 year old, we can all tell they look different, right? Like anybody can tell the difference. We also know that uh, their emotional maturity is different. We know that their intellectual abilities probably differ or their knowledge base differs. We know how they spend their days differs. And yet in medicine, we tend to treat the 85 year old as if they were 45 or 55. And actually what we see is that once people reach their later 60s even, so when, when people look at them, they still don't see them as old, although really interesting for this book, I learned in doing research across cultures and throughout time that every civilization has labeled old age as beginning somewhere between the ages of 60 and 70. Yeah. Um, but, but basically, we don't teach people how to take care of older bodies and lives and priorities in the same way we teach them about the other generations. Although, frankly, we don't do a, a very good job of adulthood either in terms of its progression. Um, we learn a lot about child development as if once you turn 18, 19, or 20, you stop developing socially, occupationally, intellectually, emotionally. And we all know that's not true. So one of the things we do in geriatrics is that we understand how the body changes, how physiology changes, um, how needs and behaviors and priorities change. Um, and we have lots of training on the particulars of older bodies in the same way you know, other people get trained on kids and adults really makes a difference. I mean, I will just say that in my clinic yesterday, I saw three new patients, each of whom had been to many, many doctors. And it took me just the first visit to figure out um, what I'm sure is wrong in two and what I strongly suspect was wrong in the third. And, and that's not because I'm such a fancy, wonderful doctor. That's because I have training in old age. So you say that there are forces arrayed against your work as a geriatrician. Mm -hmm. Um, can you give us some idea of what those forces are? Yeah, well, I would say there are two types of forces. Um, I mostly do primary care. So the, the biggest forces against me as a geriatrician are actually the exact same ones that work against uh, primary care doctors of all flavors, you know, family physicians, internists, pediatricians, psychiatrists, um, in that 
you know, we pay a lot more for people to get hospital care and a lot less to keep them healthy and out of hospitals. Uh, if you look at buildings, I have done over the last five years a great deal of traveling to most, uh, most states and medical centers, and everywhere you will see a fancy building for neuroscience and cardiology and genetics. Um, and you'll usually see a really fancy hospital with many, many intensive care units and a great big emergency department. Now, ask most human beings whether they you know, want those kinds of services. And of course, we all answer yes. But better still is to not need them. And there is an abundant, longstanding, and ever-growing evidence base on how to keep people healthier. Yet we invest, we let them get sick, and then we invest all our resources there. And we understaff primary care. Actually, the physician writer, Danielle Ofrey, had something on Instagram last night showing about how many uh, inbox messages different physicians get. And primary care doctors get way, way more, and yet there is no time in the schedule to deal with that, which means you are paying people far less to do a much harder job that is structurally unsupported by our healthcare system as it exists. Um, on a second note, as a geriatrician, uh, I am structurally undermined because, you know, like most of us, medical school is four years, and generally people get hours to days of training on old age, even though old people are 40% of people in the hospitals, um, and anywhere from 30 to 70% of clinics across specialties. Um, and we get months on kids, which also isn't enough, um, and then the whole rest of the time on adults. Uh, and, and it's just a different culture of caring for older adults and what matters to keep them healthy. And there, again, aren't the supports of recognizing the functional needs and care team required to really provide good care for an older patient. One of the things I wanted to ask as you were talking was when you became a geriatrician and decided to go into that specialty, what are some of the specialized training that you had either formally when you went into residency or informally as you went through uh, your time becoming a geriatrician? Yeah, so I actually was going to be a pediatrician, but then I found... Um, <laughs> Like causing pain in children was just not something I was confident <laughs> able to do. Um, so, so that was actually sort of crushing because I had really gone through years of planning to be a pediatrician. Then I became an internist because I figured I could at least explain to patients why I was doing things that might be uncomfortable. And that was awesome. Um, but what I found was actually via making mistakes and watching other people hurt older patients um, and learning lessons often the hard way for me and or them was that none of us was taking very good care of older adults. I had really thought I'm, I wanted to work with an underserved population of some kind. I'd worked with refugees as a, as before I went to medical school. And what I realized was that people, because of the way our health care system just didn't acknowledge old age, it does a better, you know, this is 25 years ago, so it does a bit of a better job now, but not perfect. Um, it, it, you know, every older adult was underserved. So I started first just learning more um, on my own and reading more, and I realized I hadn't been taught... Um, like we'll, we'll hear about the heart, but we won't hear about how the heart ages and how that changes um, the heart's response to drugs, to treatments. We would learn that for, you know, even basic things like heart failure or atrial fibrillation or coronary artery disease, we use these treatments. But we weren't told that those treatments, even for something like AFib, which is majority, the vast majority of patients are old. 
Um, the studies were generally done in younger old people in their 50s and 60s. And then we would apply the results to the older people. And when they had bad reactions, we'd blame old age instead of the flawed science that led us to conclude that would be helpful. So I really was excited and, and began reading and reading. Um, and then I did a couple years of fellowship in geriatrics, and that enabled me to to work with geriatricians and with geriatric physical therapists and social workers and everything else to do yet more reading um, to compensate for all the stuff I hadn't been taught um, at you know my outstanding medical school and residency program, which really did train me to take very good care of adults, but not old people. What is something that we can be thinking about uh, as we're going through our medical training? Uh, what what are some things we should be keying in on and, and thinking about differently as, you know, we think about treating geriatric patients and, and the elderly? What, what are some things that we can learn now or we, we should be learning now that we might not see in our curriculum? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think you're actually training um, and you're going to be practicing at one of the most exciting times for old age because the science of aging is so exciting now. So I would keep up with some of this stuff. Like, I don't know if you've learned about sirtuins or resveratrol or any of these really sort of molecular approaches, which if we cured cancer, diabetes, and heart disease, people would die at about the same age as they die currently. Mm. Um, and they would have the same burden of disability. These molecules, because they just die of different chronic diseases, basically, but the, what the aging scientists are telling us is that there are ways we can interfere earlier in pathways that prevent prevent frailty and decrease suscept the susceptibility to, to disease that is one of the hallmarks of biologic old age. So I would really keep up with the aging science because, you know, you hear a lot about like anti-aging and some of that is just like cosmetics and making a lot of money off people's age fear, right? Yeah. But there's actually also super exciting science. So that's one thing to look out for um, that's really unprecedented in human history. Like they're doing things people have been talking about since you know, like BCE and like the ancient Egyptians, but nobody actually succeeded until now. So super cool. Um, the other things in terms of immediate clinical practice is really understanding drugs. So the body changes with age, like you all know this, like if you see an old person, you know, it's an old person, right? So they don't just look different, their body responds differently. And so there are things like somebody can have been on a drug for years and then suddenly develop a side effect. And people will often say, well, that's not possible. They've been fine on it for years and we didn't change the dose. Okay, well, the dose didn't change, but the person's physiology did. We know even if the lab tests look the same, the function and the way the body handles um, the medication can change. Um, we also know that because studies um, don't include older adults, although I don't know if you guys know, but NIH passed a new policy this January uh, that all NIH funded programs have to have inclusion across the lifespan. So oh. most older adults have been kept out of trials either by frank age limits or by comorbidities. Um, so, so recognize whether there's actually data on that drug in that person. So mm. one of the stories I tell in the book is about uh, a woman in her 90s who got one of the great new blood thinners for AFib. And, and that meant she didn't have to get her you know, blood drawn all the time, which was terrific, except for it made her delirious. And the cardiologist said it can't do that. So I had stopped it. He restarted it. She got delirious again. This happened a couple of times. Anything, any drug can do anything in an older patient. So mm. if you even just remember that, you're going to save lives. 
Um, one of the things I've, I guess, oh, sorry, go ahead. The very last thing is to always think about function. We tend to think about anatomy and physiology. And as people get older and their horizons for life are shorter, um, what they can do, like it matters more than, than sort of the anatomy and physiology, right? So maybe this disability is okay because they can still do the things that matter to them. Or maybe it's about the mismatch between the person and the environment. And we always think as physicians, we're just supposed to deal with the person. But if you change the environment, the person can continue to be active and get to work or, you know, take care of their grandkids. So don't devalue something because it's not a drug or a procedure. If it helps the patient, it helps the patient. And that's our job. One of the things I've noticed um, in... Um in looking at the older people in my life is that they all end up on a, on a number of drugs. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that this can, this is a problem for some of them that, you know, they have so many drugs that it's hard to understand how everything is interacting, not only with their physiology, but with each other. Um, right. Do you spend a lot of time getting people off of drugs? <laughs> Absolutely. There's actually a word for it called deprescribing. And <laughs> at UC San Francisco, one of my colleagues, Mike Steinman, has just gotten a, an enormous grant, many, many millions to to really work out, like, how do we do that and how do we make it happen more often? Um, there there's so many ways this happens. And I, I don't you know, a, a lot of times people just sort of rail about other doctors and I, I think it's really important to make clear that most doctors mean well, and they're literally just doing what they were trained to do. Mm -hmm. But we created in the 20th century a system that really focused on organs and diseases because it makes it easier. But the problem is we don't get, most of us don't get taught enough about how to contextualize that. So there's a great article, it's now, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 years old by Cynthia Boyd, I think in JAMA about a person with standard diagnoses, you know, hypertension, I can't remember it's diabetes, arthritis, whatever. And so she went over all the guideline-based treatment that that real patient had received. And it basically gave her 37 tasks in a day. Um, she had to take medicines like six different times. I mean, we know you give someone an antibiotic and they have trouble taking it for a week. Mm -hmm. How is anybody <laughs> supposed to function that way? And also, mm -hmm. just because you're old doesn't mean you want to spend your whole life dealing with your health care. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's not fun. It's not interesting. People need meaning and purpose. Yeah. So absolutely to really weigh the pros and cons. And for some of them, it's like, oh, this really saves lives. Well, you know, if you're 94, hmm, you know, are you worried about quality of life or quantity of life? And, and some people will be worried about quantity, but it's worth asking. Um, right. So that's also a really good question. And, and we don't optimally know how to do that, but there's actually a lot of good science coming out on multimorbidity and managing polypharmacy. So keeping up on that will really enable you to do less harm and hopefully a lot of good as well. So I'm glad that you kind of brought up a little bit of the science and the research that's going on because, you know, I'm an MD, PhD student. So research is always something that I want to incorporate into my uh, future practice. And in your book, you actually mentioned that uh, medical, if I interpreted this correctly, that studies have only been required to include elderly patients in clinical trials since 2018. So talking about something like that, do you think that medical research has generally neglected the elderly population or are there other or are there areas where you would like to see, you know, more time being invested and more uh, 
more effort being invested in looking at the ways that disease affects the elderly population? Or do you see a more positive trend in recent years? Oh, there's definitely a more positive trend. So even before, so the NIH rule was passed in 2018, but it went into effect in 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, But people had already started doing more. One of the great advantages of the aging society is that you know, people see it as a variety of, as opportunities in a variety of ways. Some people are excited by the science. Some companies are excited by the profits. You know, I mean, there's a market, right? There's a market for everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Startups are after any market as well. So, you know, but that can often work to people's advantage. There is abundant data that, um, and lots of actually um, meta-analyses and, and, you know, uh, systematic reviews of like, studies how they exclude old people even in diagnoses where they're more common and it'll be like huge quantities were neglected so the opportunity to do really good science um, either on aging itself or on seeing if a lot of the treatments we currently use to great effect in adults are uh, better for older adults, worse for older adults, is something different required. Um, there's so much opportunity. In the book, I also talk about vaccines because, you know, there are 17 different vaccine schedules are based on behavior, physiology, um, you know, et cetera. And there are 17 schedules for kids, five for adults, and then we lump everybody over age 65 into one category. Mm-hmm. So as immunology advances, and we know the immune system changes, right? So Mm -hmm. it's really exciting to think of, are there different delivery routes? Are there different doses needed? Do you attack the problem in two different ways? Um, I think there's a lot, a lot of opportunity in this area. So um, I actually listened to a talk that you did at the Seattle Town Hall. Um, mm-hmm. I'm from Seattle. So when I saw that on my podcast app, I was like, oh, perfect. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I had to keep stopping the talk because there's so many points you made that I was just like, wow, this is good. This is good. Um, to, so I had to take notes. But um, at one point you talked about this U-shaped curve of happiness and where um, people report being very happy at younger ages. And then it actually maybe goes up um, later in life. And that might not be expected for a lot of us. Um, but you also talk about those who are happier um, tend to be more adaptable and like adapt to their situation. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and specifically like us as future um, doctors, how can we kind of promote that in our patients? And maybe if you've seen any patterns in people who tend to be more happy at, um, as older adults or more adaptable. Yeah, I mean, I think this is true throughout life. It just becomes more prominent as you get older and have more functional challenges, really. Mm. Um, So this is good for us all to know as human beings. It was sort of fun to get to research happiness and think like, oh, what should I be doing differently since I'm sort of chronologically, I'm in the nadir. (laughs) (laughs) I don't actually feel that unhappy. Um, But but yeah, so the U-shaped curve has been found, you know, obviously in the poorest countries, um, the, the situation is different. But in relatively wealthy countries like the United States, um, you know, there is this you and happiness and life satisfaction begin going up as you approach 60 and continue going up through the 80s and anxiety plummets. Um, And you can imagine reasons for this. You know, you may be anxious yourselves. I know I was quite anxious in your state. Some years thereafter. Yeah. Um, You know, you're thinking career and ambition and who am I and how am I going to 
myself? And also, do I want to buy a house? And am I going to have children? And how am I going to balance all that? And, you know, it's a lot, admittedly. And, and then you all have the advantage of living in the age of anxiety. So I think paying attention to this for yourselves as well as your patients is great. Yeah. Uh, in terms of adaptability, it's really recognizing that there isn't one way to do anything. Um, and that if something is of value to you, getting to do it, however you get to do it, really makes a difference. Now, this is hard. I always feel a little ambivalent about this because I feel like we get different psyches. You know, if you spent time with kids, you can see they come out with a certain personality. Uh, mm -hmm. I do think, you know, nurture matters, but there, there's some nature going on there. And then people who have really stressful lives um, might either be better at adaptation because they have to do it the whole time, or they might just be have adaptation fatigue. So I don't like to make it like you would be happier and why are you not helping yourself? But to understand, to say to people that you really will be happier. If it, I generally start with people by saying, what is it you value most? What is it you love doing? Um, and how do we get you to do that? And thinking about maybe you can't do it the way you always did, but if we could find another way, you could get the happiness of still doing it. And starting with something they really, 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 and then once they see it works, they're more inclined to do it in other areas. Also, starting small for an easy win is always good. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. In the um, chapter entitled Middle Aged, which I read closely because it's what I would describe mm -hmm. as myself, <laughs> um, you related the story of Frank and Cookie. Yes. Uh, oh. Can you tell us a little of their story? Yeah, so they were they were wonderful. I just love my patients. Anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> I met them because their daughter was having an experience, and, and this happens frequently when you're a geriatrician. They were in their 80s. Um, so their daughter, um, in, in, in the world of geriatrics, the child is somewhere between 40 and 80, him or herself, um, yeah, yeah. which is sort of funny. Um, anyway, was just feeling like it's just not going well, and they have all these doctors, and it's not really working. And he had had... He had Parkinson's and he'd had a stroke uh, and he tried to kill himself, which mm -hmm. it took a little eliciting for me to get that out um, because he was a guy who, you know, was proud and had taken care of everybody, you know, like son of immigrants, got his kids to college, could fix anything in the house. Um, and suddenly he couldn't do those things. And um, there are ways in which I, I, I do think aging is a little is hard for men and women in slightly different ways because what gives them power in the world is slightly different. Um, and so for him, he really felt he wasn't himself. Um, you know, he was a slight man, but and, and people tend to think of masculinity as this big burly guy. But I, I do think it was a sort of, it was a loss of identity and, and a type of emasculation with, with frailty and old age. Um, and, and she... Um, well, no, he'd had the stroke. She had the bad Parkinson's. Um, and so I met them and they were in their house and then they moved to assisted living. And she just got really sick and was dying. And it was heartbreaking because he would, he just wouldn't sleep watching her and taking care of her. Um, and the assisted living facility had trouble with her on off hospice. And so you think you go to a place like that to be helped towards the end of your life. And they have all these rules that can undermine. 
Um, with him, then he kind of outlived, actually a friend's father put it this way. He says, I've outlived my sell-by date. Mm -hmm. So we see this more and more among the oldest old, where they feel that, not that they want to be dead, but that everything they can or value in life is gone now. I actually gave a talk two weeks ago, and a woman in her late 90s said the same thing. And yet we treat assisted suicide or death or suicide as if it's equivalent when you're, you know, 99 and can barely see or hear or walk and are incontinent and don't feel well all the time as equivalent to a depressed 26-year-old or 56-year-old. So I do think one of the things we need to think of as individuals and as society is we've done all these things to make people live longer. Um, if we can't make them live better, right, if we extend the lifespan but not the health span, then we need to also give them options when they've had enough um, that aren't just the assisted suicide options, which most people in that situation cannot avail themselves of. Yeah, you in fact, um, you wrote that it seemed uh, I'm going to I'm going to quote this. It seemed neither Frank and Cookie nor the therapist working with them believed that old and frail people could make significant gains. So none of them tried as hard as they might have had they known about or believed the studies showing how much change is possible, even in advanced old age with the correct doses of the right exercises, uh, you know, giving up basically like these people yeah. are sold. We can't help them. Yeah, that's a good I was thinking you were doing the end of life point. But that was another key point, And we see this a lot. Um, people will say, well, I can't do that anymore. It's because I'm old. Now, I'm not for one minute going to say that your aging body doesn't make a difference. You know, in, sure, in, yeah. in middle age, you already know. You're like, our, I'm, already starting, I'm already starting. I'm already starting to get it. Oh, hello. This means me too. Yeah. Um, where I really thought like old age was like going to another culture until it hit. Um, <laughs> it's actually sickly fascinating. Um, but this will happen to you guys too. But, but it's actually, it's, it's kind of, yeah, no, it's actually kind of cool to be a doctor and to have thought about it because. Because even though like I'd still love to go running really quickly, like it's kind of cool to figure out new ways. And it's sort of like you're your own startup for how you deal with this. It's, it's I don't know. I think if you come to it with creativity, it's pretty fascinating and neat. Um, but for old people, they sort of figure like, oh, there's nothing I can do. And there are really great studies that show that you can build muscle mass, increase functional abilities right through your 90s. Uh, and I've got this new clinic. I started a, an integrative geriatrics clinic. And most of what a, a huge part of what I'm doing is really helping people find the right exercise so they can keep doing the activities they value most. Um, I, I had a person in her 70s yesterday who's like having trouble picking things up off the floor in her 70s, which is insane, because if you saw her like, you know, she's off doing this with the grandchildren and doing this job and starting that company. And I was like, oh, no, you can still pick things up off the ground. But here's what you need to do. Mm -hmm. There are things that you can take for granted in your body at young ages mm -hmm. that, that you have to work on daily um, as you get older. So these stories you've written are absolutely, you know, wonderful, especially to share this, uh, this important mission you're on to bring light to the importance of geriatric medicine. How did you get started writing about, you know, patients and their stories? How did I start? Yes. Um, 
Well, so after my four gazillion years of training, um, <laughs> I felt, you know, because I did a series of fellowships in addition. Oh, and I started as not a math or science major. So I had to do like stuff before medical school. So really it had been a, like a half century. Um, and I really felt like the creative parts of me had just atrophied almost to you know, like there was barely a twitch of life remaining. So after fellowship, I started taking classes, including a writing one. And I was pretty bad at it, but I loved it. So I thought I would just do creative writing as one of my creative outlets because I've always been a reader um, and I had liked writing as a kid. But what happened was because we are so lucky as clinicians to hear stories of people we would never even encounter or we'd walk by and know nothing about, they just were building up inside me. And what I was seeing was so sad or so inspirational or so funny or just so amazing and human that even though my intention had been to write the, you know, a great, you know, like refugee novel <laughs> based on my previous life, um, the stories just poured out of me. And initially I just did them as part of my learning to be a fiction writer. That was my first book. And then I realized after doing that, that I could use my writing skill. I think of it as my form of public health. Yeah. So I can write op-eds and I can write for medical journals and, uh, I can use it to explain medicine, and, and this includes what it's like to be a clinician and where the system undermines really well-intentioned, hardworking people, uh, as well as what it's like to be a patient, and especially at this age where there's so much so many false facts or disparaging of whole populations, to really show their humanity seems very, very important um, as a public mission. So, so that's how I started doing that. And I think as well as um, what you've said, I think some of these stories really kind of brought to light, at least to me, um, how important it is to think about um, old age medicine as something that's unique and also about elderly people as sort of a different population, which you normally don't think about. Like one of the quotes that really touched me was we have created a society where we do everything possible to stay alive, yet dread being old. And it was like, there's so much truth to that, that it actually mm -hmm. kind of made me pause for a second where it was like, that is yeah. just a thing. You know, as soon as you think about someone who's elderly, you think about like, oh, they're in a nursing home. They're in, you, you think right. about them in terms of health, in terms of like, oh, they're kind of old. And I feel like old and frail or old and sick just sort of mm -hmm. go together as colloquialisms. And it's something that you don't they, think about until you confront it. Yeah. And if I can interrupt, I, that's totally true for me too. Like I think of, um, you know, when I think of old, I think of um, in terms of pathologies. You know, like a, a, even a relatively right. healthy old person is kind of a sickly adult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh -huh. exactly. It's like being a failed adult. And that was where I huh. really thought we needed elderhood, because mm -hmm. who wants to be a failure for 20 to 50 years? Yeah. <laughs> was that a good yeah. Like, I mean, that totally sucks. Also, um, really, when people look at other people, this is this is completely fascinating. So take people of any age, but including people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and even 90s. And you, you line up a bunch of other people across the decades and they'll say, oh, she's old, he's old. And it'll be people younger than they are. And they don't see themselves as old. <laughs> so we know old when we see it. Yes. But actually, I, I had a conference call this morning about a talk with somebody who says she's going to be 70. And she said, but I still feel like me. And I think there is this sense of like, I'm still me. And then I look in the mirror and there's like this old guy and like, what happened? <laughs> um, which is which is kind of fascinating. But it's also because ageism is so accepted that nobody wants to be part of an out group. 
mm-hmm. um, and yet we're you know, what's your, your option is to die young. So we have set up, like, there's no good choice here. (laughs) And, and it also belies the facts, which is this thing that people in their 60s, 70s and and 80s are some of the happiest people and most satisfied people. And that the vast majority of them rate their health as good or very good. Mm. So Judy, Judy Graham in Kaiser Health News, um, wrote an article about this a couple months ago and her first few Facebook posts were like, those people are in denial. <laughs> so like, nobody will even believe it. The ageism is so entrenched. Mm-hmm. And yet it wasn't like they were saying they were like 45. It was that they were saying their health for 75 or 85 was pretty good and they felt good about it. And that's the kind of attitude that makes life great. The other thing is because we've rendered old this little category of debility just prior to death, we don't make, you know, restaurants and parks and things like that inclusive. I mean, take Mm -hmm. a park. You've got the the cool, fun jungle gym area for the kids. You've got the basketball courts and baseball courts for the adults. And you don't have what we should have for older adults, which are like stretching and resistance areas, you know, yoga and Tai Chi or this thing called pickleball, which one of my patients taught me about. My mom which loves like, pickleball. Yeah, I played it before. Hey, Jenny Steen, pickleball. Tennis and table tennis or something. And, oh. yeah, it's and so the ball can't hurt you and the court is smaller and it's more social. And, you know, like we could... We, we may we say, well, old people don't come here, but we haven't created an environment to, to say, welcome, we see you mm-hmm. and you matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why um, would they come? Well, all they have is a bench. You know? Right. <laughs> you know, or you see these people in there like, oh, oh, I was somewhere the other day and this woman was, I don't know, she was 87 and she was a day old and she had this like blondie ready hair. So from the back, you thought, oh, maybe she's in her 60s. And then it was literally, it was kind of garish and upsetting. Because nobody, because old, you know, you have gray hair and that means old and irrelevant. Whereas in fact, most people have gray hair by their 40s, which means most of our lives we have gray and white hair. It means that like when you go to a conference, most of those people are dyeing their hair and you don't know it when they're in the younger, like middle age phase. Um, and, And that further pushes old to an extreme, whereas a huge number of the people we respect and interact with um, are really in their 60s and 70s and sometimes 80s. And, you know, we just don't know it because they're pretending to be part of a power group instead yeah. of saying, mm-hmm. actually, elderhood is one of the key power groups, which it is. It, it holds, is. holds a lot of wealth and it does a lot of work. The fastest growing segment of the workforce is people in their 70s. And as they, as we get uh, more older people surviving late longer. We have uh, we have the baby boomers uh, like yourself, I think, who are. Yeah, I'm the tail. You are the. <laughs> I mean, you, it's the largest group. So, I am. I was yeah. uh, thinking of of uh, one day. I was tossing around the idea of of dyeing my hair. Yeah, for, for our listeners, we were chuckling because we're sitting as you were making those comments. They're looking directly at me. And his lovely crop of snowy white hair, and his pure white beard. It's, yeah. Yes. And uh, and I realized I would probably give everybody a heart attack if I walked in with you know black <laughs> with black hair. You know, like I used to. Yeah, have. It, I'd be okay with it as long as you kept I the white beard. I dyed mine for decades, so like I'm not, I don't want to give people shit for this. I'm just saying. That it, <laughs> am I allowed to say that on the podcast? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. yeah. Anyway, yeah. I love. 
loved dyeing my hair. Like, it was so important to me because I went gray from residency. I was in yeah. my early 30s. I was totally unacceptable. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> totally people need to do what they need to do. But as I got into my 50s, I realized, like, it wasn't... When I was in my 30s, I went in and I said, hey, just make me look like I should. This is insane. Like, yeah. I didn't do anything <laughs> fancy. I was like, just give me brown hair. Like, yeah. I'm in my 30s. <laughs> I'm not married yet. Like, you, we need to get on this. Um, so, but in my 50s, I was like, you know, I probably should have gray hair. And so yeah. now I do. Mm. My my wife would love to just have like snow white gray hair. She's mm. Oh yeah, if you could get that white stuff like yeah. now that I've done all over I'm like, "Oh, your hair is gorgeous." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she so loves funny. it. You know, I I suppose that a conversation with a geriatrician wouldn't be complete without a discussion of uh death and dying. Um, and I found an interesting article in the journal of the American society of geriatrics that calls into question the concept we have of, uh, the good death. Um, and and that in fact, any attempt to define a monolithic definition of a good death should, should be abandoned. So I'll I'll just recap this article, you know, so in in this country, our definition of a good death is one in which, you know, we die at home surrounded by family and supported by hospice care, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a bad death is one that takes place in the ICU, in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the UK, according to the authors, a good death is defined as matching the dying person's preferred place of death with the location of their death. They die where they want to die. Mm-hmm. A- and perhaps because of this difference in ideas, uh, people in the UK die more often in the hospital than, than in the US and less often at home than in the US, which, you know, like apparently I've been buying into this, into this idea of like death at home is best. Mm -hmm. Um, What's your perspective on this? uh, Well, my perspective is that a good death should be the same thing as a good life. And that's an individual choice, right? Like my good life may not be your good life. And so similarly, my good death may not be yours. Um, I I just have to chuckle about the the UK because my in-laws are there. Mm. And their healthcare is appalling. Oh, oh my God! Like insanely horrible. The, the NHS is in crisis, admittedly, and they don't live in London or Cambridge or any of those places where they might get better care. Um, so it's it's just funny. I mean, you can, you call an ambulance and it might come four hours later. Um, the the local clinic was shut down because nobody would staff it. I mean, it's just bad. Um, you know, my mother-in-law went in with uh, palpitations. She was a longtime smoker. I um, mean, they didn't like do an EKG or listen to her heart. You know, like you just can't make this up. Um, so, <laughs> so it's hard to, to think of them as, as a model. But um, but I do think, it, you know, the, the key answer to your question is, is, what we do spend so much time doing in geriatrics, and I think what any good primary care or actually good clinician does, which is like, who who are you? You know, people say we don't have time for that. How can you make a decision about what the right treatment is for someone if you don't know who they are and what they value most? Yeah. Um, you know, if it's something simple like a broken leg, maybe, you know, probably most people want to be out of pain and setting the leg helps a lot for that. Pretty simple choice. Uh, <laughs> but, but <laughs> you know, so maybe that's more tra- straightforward. But if it's anything at all serious, then there are pros and cons. I had a patient yesterday in her 70s um, who'd had, who's had some mild breast cancer and they wanted to put her on a, a robentase inhibitor. And everybody thinks, you know, she's very low risk and, and all the oncologists are saying they really think she should do it. 
And she's worried about things that they're not really thinking about, which is its effect on her sex life and mm -hmm. its effect on her skin yeah. and its effect on her joints. You know, and maybe they think because she's in her 70s, she doesn't have sex, but she absolutely does. And she'd like to keep doing it. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, people who feel that way at whatever age should not assume that because someone's old, they don't have the same human instincts that we have in younger ages. Yeah. Um, mm. So it's really, really individual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've, I've been present for conversations in my family about, um, uh, and, and, and uh, about death and dying. Um, mm -hmm. with, uh, healthcare professionals. And, um, in my case, they were, you know, sort of, um, you know, the, 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 the person was, um, you know, not, they, they were not able to express their wishes in that situation. Right. And so and hadn't been asked to express them earlier, which we should all be doing. Right. And, <laughs> and, and what, um, we notice is that, you know, so the, so the specialists were all like, you know, yeah, we can, you know, we can fix this, mm -hmm. you know, was the general attitude or they're doing very mm -hmm. well. Um, and the nurses were like, you know, standing behind them. You could almost see them shaking their heads like, mm -mm, mm. nope, right. nope. Mm -hmm. um, it's so difficult because from, from the perspective of, you know, say the neurologist, um, you know, things are going well, but from the perspective of the person who's really caring for that person in a longi more longitudinal way, doesn't look good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, right. It's it's because we focus on organs and diseases, yeah. right? If right. they're mm -hmm. thinking about the condition, then things are looking better. Yeah. But so I think no matter what field you go into, you have to think about the person and the life in order to know what the right treatment is. Fixing, I mean, this is another thing I love about geriatrics. Do I love to fix things? Hell yes, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's fun. I mean, I'm one of the people in our practice is really good. I'm good at joint injections. I'm good at wound debridement. Like, you know, I like fixing things. It, it's Of course, it makes you feel good. But we need to recognize when we're doing something for us to feel good versus when we're taking care of the patient. Bingo. And sometimes what you want to do is fix the larger problem and not necessarily the medical condition. And is the larger problem that this person lacks quality of life and any chance of regaining it by how they define quality of life mm -hmm. and or by how their family defines that defines it for that person as best they can, in which case the best treatment may be hospice. I also really hate it when say, um, well, do you, we're, we're, we're withdrawing care. Hell no, you should not be withdrawing care. You need to provide care, you know, until death and then for the family after death. Mm -hmm. You know, not treating a disease is not withdrawing care. It's changing the focus of care yeah. and palliative care, good palliative care or good life-centered care is complex and hard, right? It takes mm -hmm. years of training as well, how to communicate well, how to treat all those symptoms so a person isn't miserable unto death, you know, how to figure out what the, what best means for them. Those are complex procedures. We need to respect them as much as we respect cannulating a vessel. Because frankly, for me, um, I thought it was kind of easier to cannulate a vessel. It's not like it goes well every time, but once you've got it, you kind of got it. But a family, a family discussion. Oh no, they're going to keep surprising you throughout your yeah. career. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I was very interested. And those are opportunities for intellectual and personal growth, which is fun. I mean, for me, if I did the same thing all day, every day, and it didn't change, I would die of boredom and get a new job. I was very interested in how you describe the relative worth 
the prestige the healthcare industry assigns to different medical specialties. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, imagine two people, one person has a arthritic knee and the other person has a psychotic disorder. The person who replaces the arthritic knee or, you know, in some cases injects it, um, not that, you know, replacing a knee is so easy, I couldn't do it, but, you know, it, it is a procedure. People can learn to do it and, and do it well. Um, the person who replaces the knee, um, generally their salary is five to seven times, not five or seven percent higher, but five to seven times higher than the clinician who will chronically treat the psychotic disorder and help with the disarray in that person's life because of the psychotic disorder. This tells you a lot about our values. Um, and I and I think it's about who counts in society, right? A regular person, a normal person with a bad joint is more acceptable to us than a psychotic person. Yeah. Uh, physical health matters more than mental health. Adults matter more than children. I mean, pediatricians get paid less than geriatricians, right? I'm not just doing this because I'm whining as a geriatrician. I actually <laughs> make really good money compared to most Americans. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how the payment system sends people the wrong message and the wrong information and undermines really important populations. Like really, you're going to disincentivize the people who care for the people who are our future. Really, really, you're going to make it harder for people to care for the people who are the hardest to care for people with mental illness. That is insanity, right? Yeah. Are you, you're going to make it easier to care of people in ICUs than to keep them out of hospitals. It just isn't what we want as individuals or as communities. And yet it came about, and you can understand historically how it came about, but we're so historical. I mean, yes, these new things were exciting. Um, I also think there's some gender bias there because the more male specialties and the things that typically are done, by, you know, like if you, if you completely admittedly first have a binary view of sexuality, sex, gender, and, um, and then if you stereotype both genders. So, you know, but there's a lot of historic evidence that leads, you know, it, it does happen. Um, then the things that are, that are more male activities are actually paid much higher than the things that are considered more female activities. Um, and we began as a gender profession, as most did. So I think there's history, there's, there's tech history, there's gender, there's now structural and financial incentives to do often the wrong thing. Um, and that, that's a big overhaul, you know. Um, but I, I think, and I don't think there'll be an easy solution or an overnight fix, but I also think we don't solve problems if we don't acknowledge that they exist. Yeah. Okay. When you were talking about gender bias, I want to circle back to something, and this is slightly complicated, so I, please... I'll employ your patience and ask you to stay with me. So okay. as I was reading uh, an excerpt of your book, um, there was a story about Veronica, who was a patient who um, was seen by paramedics because she was, uh, you know, standing in a bathroom acting very oddly. And her daughter called you because she was worried and she turned out to have a brain hemorrhage. And she was right. dismissed so readily by paramedics because they were just like, ah, she's an old lady. She probably just has dementia or something. Um, and right. it reminded me a lot of stories I've heard um, both from friends and in, uh, in my family of women who were in a lot of pain who were dismissed by doctors. Like, for example, I have a family member who suffered at one point from trigeminal neuralgia. 
So really, uh-huh. really bad face pain. And she went to a dentist and asked him about it. And he told her to get over it. So, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of unbelievable. That, yeah. That is supposed to be excruciating. Yeah, it was. And she, uh, she didn't go see that dentist anymore after that. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, by the way, to our listeners who are maybe free dental, not to discourage this, but if a, someone tells you that they're having excruciating pain, maybe listen. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's true across specialties. And pretty much, yeah. <laughs> but it, and it just it reminds me so much that like as well as you have those sort of gender discriminations where people say you're a member of a certain population and assume something about it, like oh you're a woman, you complain about your pain, oh you're, oh you're an old person, then whatever mental problem you're having is just old age, you know. And it's yeah. these assumptions that I feel like are so easy to make about populations and they're assumptions that we get taught as medical students where someone's like uh you're in this particular ethnic population you probably have g6pd deficiency like just assumptions that we immediately jump to which i think is a really interesting uh point completely you know Mm -hmm. we we just stereotype everyone except for there's this narrow category of normal Mm -hmm. um people have written some great stuff about uh gender bias uh, because clearly pain is treated differently. Actually, Jerome Groupman, um, who is a Harvard oncologist and scientist and physician and wrote for The New Yorker for many years. Actually, I think he still does. He might have had an article this year. Um, but his book, How Doctors Think, starts off with the story of a young woman who, you know, they just said she was crazy. They said she had anorexia. They said, and it, 10 years with with just unbelievable, I'm not going to give away what, what the diagnosis was because you should read. It's just the first chapter. I um, mean, it might have been in the New Yorker, but it, that was such a gender discrimination thing. And it, it did permanent damage. First, she lost those 10 years in many ways. And it did permanent damage to her health that will have huge repercussions for the rest of her life. And that was all just like dismissing her because of her gender or saying, well, it must be anorexia she's a young woman Mm -hmm. so do you see that in geriatric care as well where it's like or because i feel like when i think of an elderly woman i think of little cat lady so do you see that where patients (laughs) will come to you and been like you know they were dismissed because a doctor was just like "Ah, it's little old lady disease or something Yeah, totally. Actually, I had a patient with this um, this week, too, where it was just like she had these these pains um, and they were relatively new or for months. But she'd seen so many doctors and they were all kind of, you know, saying, well, you know, you're getting older. I think she's in her 70s. You know, you get arthritis. But when I asked her where the pain was, like the hip pain wasn't in her hip where, you know, like groin pain, which is your arthritic hip pain. There weren't any bursts. You know, it was like in the muscles. And it's, you know, it was the statin she was on, right? This is the most common side effect of statins. And all these docs had seen it. It was just like, oh, you know, she's getting to be old and she's not doing as much. Well, she wasn't doing as much because she was in pain. Like the pain was waking her week. That's some crazy stuff. So guess what? We stopped the statin and she got better. (laughs) Shockingly. I know. Go figure. It was, it's not a rare side effect. Hmm. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, no. So that was like, you know, she was female. And and this is this whole intersectionality thing. I mean, imagine being old female and African-American, like the way those Mm -hmm. people get written off is insane. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, I think we're approaching the end of our time, but I, I think maybe this is a good spot to ask this question. I get the feeling that much of a geriatrician's job is to understand um, not just the science of senescence, but what it is to be elderly and help patients achieve their goals, right? Right. So, I mean, I think you should do that if you're 
you know, what it's like to be whoever your patient is in front of you at all ages. I just focus on old people. (laughs) But but with all this in mind, how is a young geriatrician supposed to understand and assist an elder? They have no gut level perspective on what it's like Mm. to be old. Um, That, yeah. That is such a good question. And I'm not, I have done about a gazillion interviews at this point. I'm not sure anybody has asked that. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, I, I actually think it's one of the reasons that ageism is so pervasive because nobody's old until they're old. Whereas, you know, other things you might experience along the way, but you don't have any context for old age. Um, what we find with geriatricians is that they usually go into it for a variety of reasons. Often people have had an older person in their life, often a grandparent that they adored. So for instance, I had like grandfather of the year. He was totally awesome. Um, So maybe, and I still didn't think geriatrics, but maybe that sort of um, primed me in some way. Hmm. Um, I also think um, you can do these exercises. Like, I don't know if you do it there and it's not completely accurate, but there are these things called the age assist kit. And you can make a person have trouble. You can give them all sorts of ocular diseases of aging with with these glasses. Yeah. You can make their hearing more difficult. You can, you know, that can make a difference. Um, you can try and spend more time with older people and, and note them, I think. Um, and then there's just sort of caring and listening and realizing, like, I'm not really going to understand this experience until I have it. And yet I'm going to try my best. I mean, I think when I really learned this was when my father had a heart attack and I had thought, oh, I care so much about my patient. And when it was my dad, it was a completely different experience. Um, and I was like, oh, OK, now I get it. But but I still think trying to get it before that made me better. Just like listening and understanding or if you Just strain your ankle or, you know, break your arm and you see what a pain it is, realize that it's still much easier for you than someone who's older and maybe has arthritis in all the joints. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. right. And, and really think about um, why an 8 a.m. appointment might be a bad idea. For yeah. to, yeah. You know, <laughs> rush yeah. to get out of the house. And, oh, and so yeah. I think it's about effort. And I think also there's so many ways to be excited about old age. Um, this is one of the issues of this century and how we transform how people live, how we extend health spans and lifespans, the science there, the clinical care there as we, as we change the research of old age, as we begin to see elderhood and old people. I think the opportunities, like if, if you want job security and opportunities to really innovate in medicine, um, this is one of the hot areas right now. So I would say go for it. All right. Well, that is our show. Um, Dr. Louise Aronson's book, Elderhood, is available now, right? At uh, booksellers wow. everywhere. All over the place. All right. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Dr. Aronson. <laughs> Thank you for having me. You guys had such good questions. I really appreciate the thoughtfulness. Hooray. Yay. We try. <laughs> and, and, and Emma Mason, Nick, Miranda, thanks for hanging out with us today. Thank you, as always, for having us. And of course, thank you, listeners, for making us part of your week. For all your feedback and your supportive T-shirt and cookbook orders over at theshortcoat.com slash store, I would like to direct our listeners, in fact, to the store, because we have this amazing cookbook um, put together uh, from stuff that you sent in. If you're new here and uh, you like what you heard, 
to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are available. We love answering listener questions, and we haven't had any for a while. So send your questions and comments to theshortcoats at gmail.com, or you can leave a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it on the show. And right now, while your podcast is open, give us some stars in a review. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, student government, and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our, exec- our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox. And our closing music is by Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week. Bye, everybody. Thank you.